Hi, so good evening, everyone. Um, So this evening, um, I have two of my intention is I have two things that I hope to accomplish in the talk. Um, This is primarily a continuation. It's the part two of what I began uh, two nights ago. And if you recall, we're having this discussion about how mindfulness, concentration, and insight, what they all are and how they fit together. And last time, we really focused on how my, what concentration is, the samadhi, and then diff, talking about that in different ways <clears throat> and how um, mindfulness fits with that in some different ways. And tonight, the first part... The first part, part that I want to accomplish is to do the same thing, but now I'm focusing on the insight side. So I want to say a lot about like, well, what is insight? How does concentration, both concentration and mindfulness now fit with it in different ways and just so we can have a good understanding of, of, of mapping it all out. That's the first thing, but also it's the last night of our retreat and so I really want to, so I wanted, you know, that's a really in the middle of a retreat kind of meditation context, but we're also going home. And so I want to really bring in a whole piece about taking the practice home, going back home. So it's also a going home retreat. And I hope that I can bring both of those aspects together in a way that fits and flows and makes sense together. That's my aim. And before I do that, as I did in, the, in part one of this talk, I spent some time, I backed up and, and to look at, well, what are these teachings? And I tried to lay at least my, uh, just a straightforward way to uh, talk about them and think about them. And uh, we ended with, hopefully people had an understanding of what we mean when we talk about non-clinging as a goal when we say a liberation through non-clinging. By the way, often you say letting go. Letting go is what you do when you're still clinging and you want to get to non-clinging. So so it fits right in there, letting go, non-clinging. I want to, just like I did last time, I want to step back again. And before getting on the insight side, I want to revisit again, like, this non-clinging and and just spend a little more time on on that again. Um, So sometimes uh, when we use the term non-clinging, there can be different connotations we have, different understandings. And sometimes you'll hear people say, uh, use the term uh, non-attachment or that we should be detached. I have not used that term. I don't use that term. I think it's a perfectly fine term, and I want to explain it, but it, it's, it's really fraught with difficulties and misunderstanding. So let me just say a, a little bit about the way, in, in, in my view, which would be kind of a, a, um, an, an unhelpful way to think about that term, and then turn it into an, uh, what I, a good way, I think, to think about it and, and then it'll help inform what we really mean getting back to non-clinging again and then we'll move on to the um, insight part. Sometimes you'll hear some terms if you read the, the you know, go the old Buddhist text that we, we turn towards Dharma and we open to this non-clinging because we've reached a state of dispassion, that's a word, disillusion with and uh, disenchantment. In other words, the idea being uh, all the ways we've been seeking happiness and we start to see the limitations, we see what they have to offer us, but also their limitations. We've talked about that. And because of that, then we become disillusioned with, with that way. We're looking for something m- that's more reliable. And then we get dispassionate towards things and we, there's some disenchantment. And those are perfectly fine words, but we have to be clear what is meant there. Because I think in everyday common usage, those terms tend to have a negative connotation. Like if you're disenchanted or disillusioned, right? You're kind of let down, 
disappointed. It has a feeling of disappointed, like you really worked on something hard, a project with a team at your work or whatever, and it didn't work out, and everybody became disillusioned, disenchanted, they were let down. But that's not really what these terms mean. So let's look at them for a moment. What, is it, what do we mean by dispassionate? Now, dispassionate can have the word of like the, the meaning sometimes of just being, like we don't feel anything, like kind of a neutrality or something. But when you actually think, what is dispassion? It just means not to be driven by the passions is all. So, for example, if any of you, some of you may have experienced being in love, some of you may not have, but uh, I've had that experience. Uh, and um, when that happens, um, you know, you're, 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 you've got, it, it colors your view about this other person and you're just deeply... It, it's, it's not a peaceful place. <laughs> and we often don't see clearly, and, and, and you know, like maybe all those cute little things you found endearing, three months later they're annoying you <laughs> or something because we're not driven by the passion. That's settled out. We can still have a deep love and care, but it's settled out and because when we were caught in the passions, it can alter our perceptions and sometimes we don't see things clearly because of that, right? So to be dispassionate means we're not just... You know, we're not on fire with this passion. And sometimes we're not able to be as clearly present with things. And when that kind of thing settles out, we can can actually maybe be more present because we're not obsessed or we're not driven. It's that kind of idea. It's not just to be neutral or numb. What does it mean to be disenchanted? It just means to be no longer enchanted. It doesn't mean to be disappointed. I mean, we may have taken on that meaning if you looked it up in the dictionary maybe they've added a meaning of dis but really go listen look at the word to not be an enchantment and so if you read the old fairy tales you know the sorcerer casts a spell the person is enchanted and they've lost connection with reality and they're in a world of their own kind of world of enchantment and it's only when, hopefully they have a good ending, the fairy tales, the spell is broken, and they're back to reality. So when we say to be disenchanted, it just means we're not caught in an enchantment. We're just seeing reality. That's all. It's not to be detached or disconnected or disappointed. Same thing with to be disillusioned. We're no longer in illusion. That's the real meaning that we're getting to here. Not be caught to see, to be more clear about what's really real and true. And so that's where we're aiming, this thing of non-clinging. These are the the qualities and the way I hope we can hold it. And it ties into insight because insight, really it's meaning seeing clearly into the true nature of things. That's what we're talking about. And so also, getting back now to this word uh, detachment, which I do think, I, I understand the meaning and I think it's fine. But, you know, as human beings, and especially many of you are psychotherapists here, but hopefully all know that healthy attachment is essential for all of us. You know, for a newborn, it's essential to have attachment with some primary caregiver, the mother, or maybe it can be more than, I'm not an expert on attachment, but I've read a little bit about it. I have a basic understanding. And if we don't have healthy attachment, we, the, the infant, I think really, if there have been some things where people, kid, infants have died, if you give them food and water, but they don't get the connection, you, you can you really could be that extreme. But certainly for many, many people, perhaps many of us, if we have, you know, there's... Uh, I can't remember all the terms, but a disorganized attachment or an ambivalent attachment or, I, I, you know, it's not a healthy attachment. It can cause major problems and for some, even when we become adults, perhaps it, it interferes with our ability to form satisfying relationships. It's so important to attach. It's in our DNA, on the cellular DNA level, to attach. 
So where is this detachment if it's actually inherent in our nature as beings to attach? So that's why I don't like to use that word. I like you know, this non-clinging in a way. But actually another way I really, is my favorite way to think about it is, and as we said, let me just back up for a moment. Remember we were talking about not being disconnected and what we actually are doing in our style of meditation practice, which is very purposefully connecting with our own being very deeply and profoundly. And in fact, we talked about, when we talked about the samadhi, the concentration last time, we're developing ability to be, enhancing our ability to be present and focused and concentrated far beyond our, the ordinary everyday level that is accessible for most people. And then taking that level of clarity and steadiness and presence and turning it into connect with ourselves. So it's not about disconnecting. It's about disentangling. Disentangling, and I like that. Is there a way we can connect but not be caught up in things? What is it like to be fully present, fully alive, fully awake? We're not denying our life, none of that, in a way that's disentangled. You get the feeling of that? And so then one, anyway, that's the main thing I wanted to add in to maybe our understanding around non-clinging. So we, we don't, we want to, it's, we need to spend time on this because we want to make sure it's, it's meant to be a, a, a way where we're free, but we're not uh, disconnected. That's the main bottom line. And I just want to add one more thing um, because someone came up to me and I really appreciate it just, I think it was a day or two ago after my talk, and, sa- and asked me, well, what about when you have children and the attachment for the children? And I feel it again. I teared up. I'm tearing up even right now as someone who is still in love with my eight-year-old son. We're super close. And in fact, I'm suffering right, I don't know what he's going to do. I hope he'll go to college, and, but, but you know, he's going to have his life and whatever. But let's just assume he goes away. He might still live at home. I don't know. That, I, but but uh, assume at some point he's going to leave home and he'll go off and have his life. I'm suffering now, uh, for real, about, <laughs> you can feel the emotion, him going in 10 years. That's clinging. Let's just be real about it. It is clinging. <laughs> now, this talk is being recorded. It's going to be up on Dharma Seed. So other people may, I don't know what, you know, other people may say about that from a Dharma perspective, but I'm just being honest for myself. I'm actually not trying, maybe I should, but I'm not even, it's not even on my radar to try about not clinging with my son. It just can't be done. So for those of us who have relationships like this, whether, we're, whether it was a conscious or not, we have decided that that is worth it to us and part of the non-clinging and letting be for us is accepting the pain that comes from you know, being a human being. So I think a lot of that is also the letting be, the letting go isn't that nothing touches us. Sometimes the letting go is just, it's just... It's like this, and that is, that's what I've got now. Maybe there's some pain and suffering if you've had a loss or something like that, you know. Uh, my mother died just about January, in January, and she was 88 years old and had been dealing with ovarian cancer for three years. And, um, you know, she lived to 88, she had a good life, it was, you know, it was all, it was just what happens when you're 88 years old and you have ovarian cancer, right? And so when she died, and... Uh, and I had a mixed relationship with my mother. She loved me, but um, I would call it ambivalent attachment, if just my best understanding. I mean, she's a good, sincere person and all that. But um, it was what it was, mixed relationship. And with, with her, it, just having her gone, it's, um, it's kind of weird. And I was back at my, with my family, uh, with my brothers at the home. We're going to sell the home. It's like, wow, mom's not there and the home's not there. 
nothing went wrong. This is what happens. She got old, she passed away. I knew ahead of time. It's what it is to be a human being. And this is where the compassion part comes in, another part of opening our hearts, just to, to what it is to be a human being. And we're not doing anything wrong, but I think it's another way that it, we have to hold all of us and we hold each other as fellow sufferers too, because we're all in this situation together. And I'll just end this little piece with a, uh, a little story that it said that when, when the Buddha died, a number of his disciples were crying and wailing and the master has left us and what are we going to do? These are people who had been with the Buddha practicing. And it said, one of the, one of the other senior monks said uh, something like, uh, have you learned nothing of what the master taught? <laughs> Didn't he teach us that all things that arise will pass away? So it brings the wisdom piece in, but it also, to me, what's important is the humanity of people who, first of all, had the karma to be with the Buddha, and they were, these were serious men and women, serious practitioners. And even when the Buddha had, was known to have these two chief disciples, Mahamogalana and Sariputta, when Sariputta died a few months before the Buddha, and it's quoted when, the, when, the, when Sariputta died, the Buddha himself said, it's like, I don't remember exactly, you might, but it's like the light of the sun of the moon has gone out. So I'm, in, I'm imagining a little, but he, you know, he didn't just say, mm-hmm, you know, and just, he, <laughs> and I imagine him going, oh, sorry, Buddha. It's like this, um, so this is what we got. We're human beings. The Buddha was a human being too. He saw the way things are. He understood the nature of things. But it doesn't mean that somehow when we start to wake up and liberate our hearts, we're not, we just become something other than human beings. I think in a way, we, we more fully embrace who we are. But the insight, that's what I want to move into now, is then seeing, well, what's really real and true to help us about this? So that not only can we start to liberate ourselves from the suffering, but even have the, the stability to meet these kind of losses when they come, knowing that they're going to come, and being uh, willing and able to just, uh, you know, even if what your life looks like is that you're, um, the best you can do is curl up in a ball on your floor and wail. You know, that's how it is for us, say. You know, okay, that's what's actually happening in the moment. How, if that's what we have to work with. That's what we have to deal with. That's the reason Stephen Levine once, I think it was him, or someone said, you know, we sit here to meditate, and it's like being with ourselves, and it's like lifting the little weights. So we build up the muscles for when the really big stuff happens. Hopefully we've got some practice. And even here... Then we even got a little extra practice, like, oh man, we're gonna, these people are so good. Um, you know, maybe we'll turn off the AC. <laughs> we didn't do that. <laughs> but I'm thinking, uh, you, don't know, you don't know what forces are at work to help teach us. Okay, so. We already then looked at that how, what mindfulness is. Hopefully we have a good, not only conceptual understanding, but a lot of experiential understanding. And of course, it doesn't stop there. It's a lifetime of exploration and investigation and growth in, in mindfulness. And we're starting, or maybe more than just starting, to understand what this settling and stability of mind is. The undistractedness, the samadhi, the concentration both an, a conceptual understanding and experiential, and how mindfulness works with that. So if you did nothing else, and this is we said last time, if you did nothing else but just steadied your mind, a number of people have come and talked to me how, um, just through that alone, how much clearer the awareness was, and, and it can manifest in many, many different ways. 
for some people, they start to notice so many more details of what's going on. That's one way. In their minds, in their bodies. Their awareness is so clear and sharp. For other people, it's not so much noticing more details. They just kind of go to a place of clarity and peace and equanimity and stillness. And it's not a dullness, though. I mean, they're still clear and awake. Um, so it can manifest in a lot of ways. But that alone, we start to become aware of everything in our experience, including um, all the ways that we create suffering, our, when we cling, and starting to learn how to let go of our suffering. So that's already some insight. So let me define what I mean by insight. For, and this is just my own definition. To me, insights in, in the context of what we're doing here from Dharma is any, an insight is anything that we understand or perceive, or know, or see, that through that, what, through that perception or understanding lead to some, a deepening in the liberation through non-clinging. That's a, and, there, and insights can come in many different ways. And I want to talk about the, them, spend a little time in some of the ways they can talk about, and I'm going to divide it into kind of three groups. I want to talk about the ways insights can happen when we're really deep in meditation and we're like the samadhi strong. I want to also talk about ways that insights arise when we're in formal practice, formal meditation, but your mind's not so clear. You can't concentrate. You're dealing with challenges and all of that time. That's actually at a very, very important time. We don't want to miss the opportunity that's there for us. And then the third piece I want to talk about is all the insights, the opportunities for learning that come when we're not just when the rest of our lives, when we're just living our, walking around, going through our lives. Uh, and, I'll, and that'll be the part I'll use to tie into the going home piece. So that's my intention. All right. So classically, there might be a number of ways that insights insight is talked about, but one of the traditional ways you'll hear that tends to come out of the deep meditation is having insights into, we've been talking about these three characteristics, impermanence, the second one which we call suffering, but it's really this word dukkha, we've talked about that there's an unreliable aspect to life and, and um, uh, when we cling to something it really is suffering. And then the uh, what sometimes called no self, but not a good translation, but, uh, but really just means we see that that impermanence applies to everything, our own minds and bodies. It's all changing, and that's an insight, right? So that's a traditional way that insights happen, and those are important. And you can have some experiences. I'll give you an example. Um, and this happen, has happened to me when I've been very deep in the formal meditation I, so if I were to ask you right now, um, you know, check in, and you're obviously all having some kind of experience right now. And so to have you check in and just whatever, any experience, what you're seeing or hearing or thinking or feeling or experience in your body, just pick anything. And I would say, can, can you name some experience you're having? And you could, you would all say, well, yes, of course. And then if I were to ask you, can you see that that experience is changing my guess is, it, for most people, it would go something like this. You would, this may not be exactly for everyone, but many people would probably say, well, mostly I just notice the experience itself. But if I make a point to look at, the, to notice the fact that it's changing, like here, I notice I'm speaking and my hands are moving. So if, if it's visual, you see this is a changing experience. The fact that it's ch of change itself, if you make a point, you can notice, wow, it's not staying the same, it's changing. But if I hadn't pointed that out, that fact of change may not pop out to your awareness. It may just be you're just noticing the experience. I've had experiences when I was, I mean, these are like very deep samadhi experiences where it completely flipped around. And what was just popping out into my awareness was 
changed the fact of change. It wasn't a concept. That's what was just my perception. And then if someone were to ask me, I could say, well, yes, now that you've asked me, I can notice the experience itself. It's the exact opposite of that. That's a real, alive, palpable, direct experience into the nature of impermanence that makes it so alive. And you really get it that there's nothing but change, change, change happening. The idea around this kind of insight is that um, now there are times when something like that happens and I've heard people report of being terrified. One person has reported, and this is not uncommon, that notice as she was stepping in meditation because everything, you're, you're only in the present moment. It's like being on a knife edge of the present moment. And just behind that, it's just dropping away. The, the past is just gone, like into oblivion, and the future's not there, and, and you're just on this balance of this change, and it, it was scary. Like, I'm going to go into some kind of oblivion or something like that, and, I gotta, and, and it made them cling worse. And that can happen when these things happen, and then all that's saying is the equanimity hasn't come up to meet it, and what we realize is of course, you don't have to cling because it's all going along just fine on its own. And when you finally let go, you say, you know, I don't have to do anything. It's true, it's, it's just, it's all fine because that present moment doesn't dissolve into oblivion. You're just fine and you relax. And it's the letting go of clinging where the inner peace and happiness comes because we meet life, you get the idea, on its own terms like that. So that it's like, yeah, it's all changing but because the non-clinging's there, I'm not, look, I'm not being bothered by that. I'm resting at peace in the flow of change. And now I'm open to the comings and goings, and then I don't get, I don't get bent out of shape when it's a warm day, and it becomes a cloudy day. I had a, uh, I've had a blissful meditation. I come back the next day, a lot of hindrances. Come back again the next day, I'm back in the bliss, whatever. We, these things come and go. So this is the idea of that kind of insight. And similarly, you can have insights into other characteristics. I'm not going to spend time talking about it here, but into dukkha and also into, we call it the selfless nature of your own being. Or I like to see that as one teacher I heard say it, which I really liked, it's, he said, uh, we realize that we're not nouns, we're verbs. In other words, you, of course you have a self. What's the nature of yourself? And you see that you're a collection of changing conscious processes. And it's all changing. And an image that sometimes used, I really like, if you look at, uh, if you walk up to a river or a stream and you go to look at it, you go back and, yep, that's the river, that's the stream, and it's its name or whatever. You go, you come back the next day and you go back and, yep, there it is again. Well, certainly all the water's been changed out. None of it's the same. But we say it's the same river. We, I don't know how much it changes in one day, like, but, you know, some amount of sediment new. The, the bottom's not the same. Maybe it's, it's covered over by another level of sediment or it's slightly eaten away of this bank. Some of it's gone that was there before. And over a long time wouldn't be the same bank. There would be nothing left that was the same that we would say is the river, but we say that's the same river. It's a convention. Some of you will have to correct me on this, but the basic idea is pretty close, that I've heard it said that I think it's every seven years. It's either, I think it's every cell, maybe it's every atom, I don't know, but every cell of your body has been replaced. Something like that is true. So from seven years ago, or go back whatever, a decade, there's nothing in your, of your body that was there before. It's been replaced out. Um, but, you know, every day I look in the mirror and it's like, yep, that's me. <laughs> right? So this is getting into the idea of that we see that we're a changing process. It was like I talked about before, like with uh, talking about non-clinging around uh, clinging to youth. It's getting back into that. And the whole purpose, again, of these kind of insights is that um, we, we start to learn to let go and be more at peace with just the way things are. Because, you know, when, when, when I look in the mirror and, you know, there's that old face looking back and I wonder what went wrong, and then I have to remind myself, it's like, but nothing went wrong. 
It's what happens if you're a human being, if you're a human mind in a human body. It's not, right? it's not going wrong. Yeah. And that's part of coming to terms with life on, on its own terms, right? So those are the kind of the, the ideas of those kind of insights. But there are a lot of other kind of things that can happen when our concentration is strong. And so, for example, all the things we've been talking about so far on this retreat. So, for example, uh, when Gary was talking about emotions, some of us, uh, by the way, I want to be clear, it's not like you're supp- when you get deep, that means all this emotional stuff's going to come up. And I think we made that clear, but I want to emphasize, there's no supposed to. Some people have a lot of emotional stuff things, experiences coming up that can be challenging or difficult or can feel good and cathartic or all different kinds of things. That's um, how it is for them. And other people, it's not to say there's, they don't have any emotions, but it's just more smoothed out. They don't get a lot of that. And sometimes people will even say, I must not be going so deep because I'm not getting that up, but it's not like that. Um, there's not, you're not supposed to get anything that's not supposed to like that. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with deep. It's just, that's not what's arising for you. So we don't want to, you know, start judging what's supposed to happen. Now, sometimes, uh, even when we're very deep, we can have these emotions come up, for example, but we're still in a pretty deep, concentrated place. And then what that means is we've got an, the support of the, of the samadhi to meet the body pain, to meet the emotion or the fears or the, you know, he, was t- he used a lot of moods, affects, emotions. I tend to use them interchangeably. I'm just, you know, that's how I kind of talk about it. And, or the thoughts. That's all happening, but we're deep enough in that we can, um, we, it's supporting us. So that extra clarity comes to meet what's happening. And then a lot of insights, Another important place for insights, in addition to the traditional classic, for example, you can have psychological insights. A psychological insight is not necessarily in service of the liberation that the Buddha pointed to. But often, but when held in the context of, or the framework of what we're teaching here, Oftentimes there are, we talk about being disentangled. We've got these tangled places in there. And uh, we're places we get, we create suffering and we really get caught. And maybe we really create a very strong sense of self, but it's, it's a suffering sense of self or something like that. And psychological work can release a lot of that. That's, and so that's, I, I, you know, uh, is very important. I really feel it's one of the really gifts as the Dharma's come into the West and met psychology that we've been able to contribute, at least for us Westerners, uh, with our Western psychology that we grew up in. And, and it, it's really added for many of us a tremendous uh, uh, whole area opens up of uh, aspect that, that's so helpful and supported in freeing our hearts and minds. So psychological insights can come, even when we're deep in. Sometimes we're in a very still place in the samadhi, and um, it's not like there's an emotion or something. It's just we're in the stillness, and then just some realization comes. That's when I was saying earlier, and I like to. So I used to have a little notebook, and I would write because you want to, You really had a realization, and and you want to capture it as something, and that's all right. It can it can serve us. So there's also what can happen is um, this is not a traditional way to think of insights, but sometimes in concentration you get into meditative states that are very expansive and really what's predominating is not what's the change of your mind and body, but actually these altered concentrated states of light and bliss. And you can have experiences of opening to, you know, boundless love or something like that. And those are not traditionally talked of in terms of insight, meditation. But just, this is just me. I feel like um, there's a lot of, if you, if you broaden what we mean by insight, of what we experience to open our, free us. Uh, because it can, 
shake loose our clinging to certain very narrow identities we have, for example, that we see there's something much more broad and, and, and expansive aspects to either ourselves or our experience. And so that can uh, release clinging in certain ways sometimes. So there's many, many forms that it can take that happen in the deep concentration. So that, that's enough about that. There's actually a lot more that could be said. Okay. A lot of times it's common for people to mistake that the real insights come from deep samadhi. Um, I feel that the times when we're meditating and you're not, you can't concentrate or you're dealing with hindrances, your body hurts, you're having a hard time, just any of, you know, what, what, you, what we typically call, I'm not having a good sit, my meditation's not going very well, I think truly is at least as important as the times in deep samadhi. It's not as pleasant, maybe at least as important. And maybe for some of us, sometimes more important. Because we get to see how we are in relationship to all that happens when we're not, you know, you're not blissed out, going into the light, you're not in samadhi, whatever, however it manifests from you. You get, you get a whole other level, well, how do I work with this now? It unmasks levels sometimes of of clinging or our inability to be present with something uh, that maybe we wouldn't have a chance to see if, if, if all you did was to sit and meditate and every time you just went into this stillness and peace, but then maybe there was, you never had a chance to uh, light up other neural pathways where other uh, experiences can happen. And so that's actually an important place and it's not like you have to go looking for it. You know, as we said, um, those times will find us. Those times will find us. And when they do, rather than, uh, it's just like, oh man, not this, and uh, what happened to my good sit, and oh, I don't want to sit with this. It's like, if we can shift our perspective and, and have more of the attitude of, let me not miss the opportunity that's being presented here. I don't want to miss the opportunity for growth that this experience happens. And I, for example, there's um, some people that I work with pretty regularly who are very accomplished meditators and can sit for several hours and go into these deep samadhi. And, and then one guy was sitting very, very long. And I said, well, well, you're sitting actually quite long. And I just was checking in. He says, well, for the first hour, two hours, he was in deep. And he said, then he said, um, he would kind of, the, the energy of the concentration would dissipate. He was kind of lifted out and he was more restless. And he could have gotten up and walked. He said, but I wanted to hang out here. I wanted to sit long enough so that he, I'm not saying you should do this, but he was saying he actually wanted to sit long enough so that he had some physical pain in his body. And the concentration had waned because he wanted to spend a little time just to seeing like, okay, well, how am I with this? and explore it. What an attitude to have. And I don't think he had this like John Wayne macho attitude. Uh, I really think he, from a place of wisdom, he wanted to just consciously do that. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. But um, work with what you have when it comes and use it there, right? And then that's the other time then, because the, the concentration, it, it's sort of a two-edged sword. It can have the power to bring a clarity when other experiences come, a power to meet it. But it also, depending from time to time or the person, it can have a suppressing quality where difficulties can't arise when you're in that meditative state. And so sometimes we need to have backed out of the concentration in order for, to allow these other more, uh, all these other experiences, whether they're challenging or not, to be able to, to, to come up. And so it's actually an important time not to, to diminish. So I could say a lot more about the style and the kind and ways, but I think a lot of you already have a lot of familiarity with what we're talking about uh, of the opportunities to work with things when challenges arise or difficulties or whatever it is. So hindrances attack or whatever. So I'll leave that at that, just for the sake of time. 
So there's the insights that can come, the learnings we have, perceptions, understandings, whatever it is that helps us see what goes on in our hearts and minds, how we create suffering, the ways to let go of our suffering, that's what we're learning, or, oh, I'm not able to let go of my suffering here, that's learning. There's the times when it happens when we can't concentrate. And then I'm gonna come back in a moment and end with daily life which is really, to me, I think, is the most important of all. And this is coming from someone for many years. It's like, I think meditation is a big deal. And I've really come, I used to say, well, you know, daily life, of course, that's important, but I didn't really believe it inside. But you had to say it, or you just sounded like, a, you know, you, it, didn't, it didn't come off very well if you said that. <laughs> didn't believe it. Now, I've really come to appreciate the uh, power of all our daily life, and I'll spend some to come back to that in a few minutes. How essential that is. But just very briefly, I, I want to pause here and name that um, all meditation practices in our tradition are part of one, they're different branches of the same, of one meditation family, if you will. And a lot of these Brahma-Vihara practices, they do overlap with concentration and, and the insight part, so I don't want to make a hard separation, but sometimes those get thought of as a separate class of practices, so you can hold that however you want. But they're important, big deal. But when we talk about the mindfulness, concentration, and insight and how they work together, all the different ways that they're taught fall into one of three branches of the meditation family, what we call insight meditation, what we call concentration meditation, and the way my personal style, I don't know if we've been doing that particularly here, but my own style is mindfulness, concentration, insight, integrated as one path, they're not separated. So it's three different emphasis. And I just wanted to name that because you can see what your relation, you have enough, I don't think this is gonna be confusing, and then you can kind of see how you lean. So traditionally, people who, who practice in a style called insight meditation, they're still going to value the, the importance of an undistracted mind. But th there's a range of how much emphasis you want to put on the concentration. But in, this is a gross generalization, but they may be very interested, not so much in how concentrated I am, but in connecting with, with, the, with and bringing insight into all the changing experiences. They want to stay connected with that and putting their attention in various ways on their body and their mind, on changing experience in order to have insights and into, the, into that. So they're, they're really interested in turning their mind to specifically the insight side with the understanding that by doing that you naturally gain a certain amount of concentration and you gain all the concentration you need. You don't have to particularly worry about it. So the emphasis is on just really mindfulness with what's happening. And so that, that makes sense, right? Just that basic idea. That would be kind of, it, it's, it's a big range, but that's sort of a general idea. People who then would do a different kind of practice called concentration meditation may feel that having a very clear, steady, powerful awareness enhances the insight sides when we come back with our mindfulness to meet our experience. So they may turn to the practices of insight meditation only after purposely devoting themselves to cultivating very deep concentrative states. And they may not particularly be concerned about the insight aspects so much. They're emphasizing developing the concentration and then, then after that may then consciously turn to these other practices of insight meditation. And similarly, of course some insight comes even if you're just doing that, just for the fact of being so clear and concentrated. That was really a gross oversimplification, but I hope it gives just a little flavor and don't be too confused by it. The way I like to teach, I just thought now that I'm here, I have an opportunity, I'm gonna just offer this up to you of the many ways to practice. Here's another one. The way I teach and practice is this. You give a fair amount of emphasis to mindfulness of breathing or whatever. 
And you just stay with that and you're developing the concentration. And during all the times when you're uh, your mind's, your body's doing well, your mind's clear, steady. You just stay with that. You don't think about, am I doing concentration insight? You just go for it and let take the concentration as far and deep as you want. On its own, without you doing anything to make it happen, as you know, there will be many times when you won't be able to concentrate. Difficulties will arise. You're on the insight side. Instead of clinging to try to concentrate, you turn skillfully to how do I work with what's going on now? And it's, it will look very similar to a pure insight kind of practice. And then on its own, that'll settle out. You'll go through these cycles. Your mind's clear. You're back on. Just stay with your breath. You're, and through that, we don't have to pick, oh, am I doing concentration or insight? You really fully get both. And... Um, your experience, you, you, just, you just have to stay attuned to, to what's happening in the present moment and know how to kind of surf back and forth of the, of, of, and really you get the best of, of both worlds. And, you, and not only that, there's a little extra, which I don't have time to go into, which is even when you're in the concentration side in, in this way of practicing, uh, you can, I mentioned earlier, you, you could develop a concentration that's disconnecting and that's connecting. And if, don't worry about what that is now, I'm happy to talk to any of you one-on-one anytime about this, but, uh, or you can read my book in the fall, but there's a, um, um, there, you, there, it's not hard to steer it and, and you can keep the samadhi connected even when you're deep in, and then the insights can even happen then. So uh, that's another way also, may or may not be the right style, all of these styles are powerful and good. And um, I hope you, no one ever tells you one's better than another because it's just not like that. It's what are we drawn to and what works for us best. And every style of meditation practice that I've ever heard of has been very powerful and liberating for the meditation master who went deep in that practice. And that, that's why they offer it. So we know that all these practices work. And that's the good news. You can't go wrong. All right. So I hope that was clear enough. And now I want to make a a shift here. And I'm going to slow down. I I was aware of, of clipping along because I, I had a big agenda for tonight, because that was originally all I wanted to talk about, and I was going to kind of slow it and stretch it out a little. But then I, I finally realized, well, that we need to go home, <laughs> not go into samadhi. <laughs> so um, I want to really spend some time, we're going to talk tomorrow also in the closing about some real hands-on about reintegrating, but since some general things because this is actually very tied <clears throat> to the third way in which insight arises, which is in just what, all the rest of the time when you're not doing any formal meditation, you're living your life. It's such an important time, and this is the real reason I think it's of such value. We say we want to Sometimes you'll hear it say that we have what's called conditioned patterns. It's just habits of our mind, the way our minds work. That's what it means. It's fancy language, conditioned patterns. We say that everything happens because of some reasons, due to causes and conditions. So our psychology, our physiology, our nervous systems, all our brain wiring physically, it, it's due to certain conditions. It's been conditioned in a certain way. And uh, one of the things we're trying to do is, first of all, start to shift the conditioning so that the, and ultimately lib- kind of transcend our conditioning in a, in a way, so we're not just at the jerked around by it. But let's just say, start to change our, those patterns from unwholesome to more wholesome tendencies in us. We're going to shift condition patterns. And it's like you're lighting up, I don't know exact, I, I don't 
read up all this, you know, the brain science. I don't know much about it, but I, so I'm just trying to paint an image. Don't all of you who are, well, I realize all these uh, psychotherapists in here, uh, <laughs> don't worry that it, I'm messing up the image. But it's like you're lighting up certain neural pathways, right? If you want to understand your suffering, right, how do you understand something? It, through the experience. If you want to understand your suffering, we need to come to know it. Again, you don't need to go... There are, there are respected paths of meditation that seek to create challenging situations, like my friend who wants to sit longer until it hurt. That would be an example of seeking out pain to work with it. So, so that exists, but I think for most of us, it's not like you have to go seek it out. But if you want to understand certain patterns... You have, to see your you have to see your conditioning to understand it. Well, how do you get at your conditioning? Where is it? It's not, you can't get to it. It's not floating out somewhere. The only way you can get to your conditioning is indirectly. When you bump up or come to meet some cause and condition, some situation that illuminates that neural pathway, that condition has been, it was like my example when I was driving over commuting to work and my heart was in this beautiful place remember I said that and I'm chanting may all beings and then the aggressive driver came out the right cause and condition came that person did me a favor that potential for ill will or we could say an unwholesome mind state was waiting there a dormant seed waiting for the right uh, conditions to sprout I never would have seen it. So I'm not saying you have to go look, you know, where's my conditioning and where's my conditioning. Every day you get to find out how am I in relationship to others? To people, whatever it is, your situation in life. Maybe you have people you live with or I don't live what I'm with. How, what's my relationship with that? What's my relationship with if you, have, if you work or not and my coworkers? What's the relationship with my neighbors when I listen to the news or maybe don't want to listen to the news or when I... Everything of life. With my own mind and body too. That's in there too. Everything with myself, with my own being, with everyone else. We get to see how we are in ways that we're sheltered from here on retreat. We all know that being on retreat can be challenging. It can be challenging. But we've also created an artificial environment, a specialized environment, and we're doing it on purpose because we want to set up the conditions for something very particular to be able to help us really deepen in mindfulness, concentration, insight, and of course, states of the heart, the Brahmaviharas and all that too. We want to be able to really focus on that without other distractions. Then, now we take we go back into our lives and the specialized, the protection is gone and everything that annoys you is just waiting for you. <laughs> you could hold it that it's, that it's a big annoyance or whatever it is, you know, everybody's an idiot or I don't know how it is for you. <laughs> or how about this as an experiment? What if... Everyone, everyone you meet is fully enlightened and they're doing everything they're doing for the, your benefit. <laughs> Try the experiment. It's amazing. It doesn't mean you stop taking care of yourself. You don't become a doormat and passive. You don't just sit there and say, well, someone's abusing me. I'm not setting healthy boundaries. I'm not getting my needs met. You want to function fully in a way that's healthy and wholesome. You don't just accept social injustice. You don't, you know, what, all of this stuff, we, we keep doing. We want to be more engaged than ever. So you're not, you don't, we don't just go, well, I'm a passive blob, you know, whatever. I'm not clinging to anything. No. That's, that's, 
that's what we call the near, did you talk about near and far enemies? So you know the concept? That's the near enemy of equanimity. Whatever. <laughs> right? No, that's not what we're talking about. Fully functioning in a healthy way, and some of us have to learn what that means to fully function in a healthy way. That's a different topic. That's what we're all working on. But having said that, then what would it be like, try this experiment. You Try it for one hour or one day. It's amazing. You've got to keep telling yourself because you're going to fit. Everything, because it's not how you act, it's shifting your inner response, your inner state of mind, right? And then, and I have to tell you, I, didn't, I knew RAIN, but I didn't know the acronym STOP. And I was talking to Gary about it. It's the whole Dharma. <laughs> Think about this. Just, I mean, he already did it, but I'm going to just kind of... Whatever's happening, it, you, there doesn't have to be an outward stop. My mo- body's still going, I'm doing whatever, but I, mentally, just stop. Take a few breaths. Oh, look around, just check in, right? And part of that in this experiment is uh, add in, you know, okay, this is doing me a favor. If, now it depends. I don't know if you have an aspiration so that uh, to liberate your heart and mind. I don't know your aspiration. I don't know if you have an aspiration to live so that your heart never closes off to any beings. Ever. That's a high bar. I don't even know if it's humanly possible. I just know for myself, I don't know what else to do in life except to go for that. I, nothing else, I don't know. So for me, that's a real bar. And it's, I don't judge how I'm doing. It's just, and so this is the next piece. As you're going out in life, we start to shift our attitudes. Actually, what I was just going to say, I'll come back to in a moment. Uh, we start to shift our attitudes. And maybe seeing that things are doing me a favor. Sometimes, look, I know it's going to happen. Sometimes something's going to happen and you're going to say to yourself, you're going to remember what I said at the retreat and you're going to just go, you know, damn that Shankman. <laughs> this is not doing me a favor. <laughs> so, yeah, I know, but you get the idea. But along with that becomes a place where maybe we become a little less afraid of what happens because I want to also offer that we can bring the experimental attitude. The experimental attitude isn't afraid of what might happen. It only is looking to see, like, it's stop, ST, and then observe what's really happening. And then that, inf- I just look to see. I'm open to life to give me what's, what's real and true, not... And then the experiment, okay, I proceed, right, according to your best sense and judgment, right? Yeah. So it's a little bit of, and I've got to be willing to experiment, it may not be the right thing. I may cause some damage out there. I may, through my own ignorance, for example, uh, ways that I speak to others or make assumptions about other people or I'm blind to their suffering or, their, or whatever it is, and I act in a way that creates suffering I didn't know. But if I want to understand, if I care about other people's suffering, I want to know. And then I'm open, maybe they give me some feedback, you know, I feel like, you know, you're just objectifying me and you don't see me, you just see a big, tall Jewish person and I'm, or, you know, I'm not, a, you know, whatever it is, you know. And, um, uh, and then, I, then I open to learn because I'm open to the experimental attitude instead of, because I'm not, I'm not so like, am I going to be okay? I'm more, huh, this is teaching me. So everything is our teacher experimental attitude. And I think that's something you can experiment with um, and see if that's helpful for you as you go out into life. And don't worry about the times you forget. You're going to forget many times. You're going to get reactive again. Listen, I'll tell you a story real quick. Uh, So I mentioned I sat a one-year-long retreat. And uh, it was a self, I mean, I was at a retreat center, but I was basically, you know, there wasn't, I think they had talks twice a week. I didn't even go to the talks. Uh, they actually came and knocked on my door and said, you know, you don't have to come to the talk, but we really notice you're not coming. To <laughs> so I was just really in my own space. 
And I'd come out to bathe. I had a job in the kitchen once a day, but I was just sitting, meditating, walking. And it was, it was a good retreat. It was really great. And so here's what happens. I had, an, I had a friend I'd gone to college with. I hadn't seen him in like many decades. I think I knew him in the 70s. This was like maybe a dozen or so years ago when I did this retreat. And he happened to live, this was at a place in Massachusetts, some of you know Insight Meditation Center, they have a thing, a place called the Forest Refuge, that's when I did my retreat. He was living nearby in Massachusetts. Somehow he connected up, found me, I don't know. So I'm coming out of the retreat and I made arrangements to just to meet him. And so um, first day out of the, and so you get really, really sensitive. And, you know, I thought, my equanimity was so strong, I just thought, um, I don't need to reintegrate, nothing, I'm just good, you know, whatever. I just, like, I look, I just, it was really a nice place. So, first person I talked to, I mean, I had some conversations a little, I, you know, my wife and I would talk, like, once a week, like, how you doing, and thank you for letting me do the retreat and all that, but, uh, you know, uh, so it's not like I didn't spoke to, speak to anyone. First real conversation I had, he came and picked me up at the center, get in the car. Um, and it was interesting, he hadn't changed from the old hippie days. He had his hair, it was fine, but I mean he had his hair down here, it was gray, chain smoking marijuana, and he cranked his reggae music up like <laughs> and my nickname, Shankman, and my nickname was Shank. He goes, Shank, and he's like and, and, and I'm sitting in the car, just like this, <laughs> vibrating. And I thought, all right, it's like this, and you know. And, just, and so he drove me to, I think it was like a Burger King kind of place, and that's okay. For, I just tend not to eat that kind of food. It's like, all right, I'm going to eat this food. And, and it had turned out that, and so I'm going to say something around politics, and when I do, I just want to be very careful here, because my politics happen to be quite liberal. And but I want to be really careful that when you hear me say the politics part, I'm not making a judgment because sometimes in the Dharma scene, we make an assumption that everybody's got this certain kind of politics. And I want to tell you that there are um, hidden, closeted, just like for the gay community, and it's not been safe, but I'm telling you, who are conservatives? And it's not safe. And so my... And, and, and I want to name that because uh, people need to feel safe and to be okay and not have to hide themselves. I think that's very, very important. Even though I disagree with the politics, that's all right. We can disagree and, you know, and, and it's okay. So I want you to hear that uh, very important because I don't want anyone to get triggered when I give the political example. My point is not to make a political point, but it's talking about just what happened in my mind. So while I'd been on this retreat, this had been when... Uh, I didn't know about uh, the whole Iraq. I knew we'd invaded, but I didn't know about the whole Abu Ghraib thing that happened, right, with the prison in Iraq and all that stuff. And I'm reading this stuff, you know, as, as I'm coming out in the last week, and I'm, I shouldn't have, and I'm looking at the magazines, those images of that guy with the hood and those wires, and it was rough. So um, he uh, takes me there, and he's talking to me, and something came up in the conversation where he said, Shank, I, I hope you won't judge me too harshly because of whatever. I don't even remember. And I just said, this was a kind of an assumption I made. I made an assumption. Uh, uh, I didn't just, and I, I said, Ed, you don't have to apologize to me for anything. It's just great to see you. I said, you know, I don't care. You know, you're just, you're, I'm just so happy to see you. Just don't tell me you're a George W. Bush supporter. He said, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, because, but not only am I a George W. Bush supporter, I'm a big George W. Bush supporter. This is my marijuana-smoking, reggae, long-haired guy. He's a super um, conservative guy, it turns out. And I stood up. Now, he later told me that I just slightly raised my voice, but I was so sensitive, it felt like I yelled in the restaurant. And I said, this is actually still painful to me. It was so painful. I said, what, I'm not going to spare the language. I want you to, I said, what the hell is the matter with you? Are you crazy? I would never speak to anyone like that in a million years. 
well, <laughs> so I thought. <laughs> and I sat down like this. And then, uh, but he did get a good one back to me, he said, which I thought was pretty funny. He said, well, I see what eating all that tofu has done to your mind. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty good. And I am running a little over. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind this up here pretty quick, but I just want to... I'm, I'm, I'm leading to one final thing here, so please hang in with me. And then he and I are fine. I still am in communication, and I just said, look, Ed, I'm reactive. And he goes, it's okay, I understand, and, and we have different politics, and it, it's actually okay. I went back to the, med to the retreat center in tears. And I went to the teacher... And I said, it's all, it was all for nothing. It's been all a waste. I'm a fake. I spent a year. I'm merging in oneness with, all, with, with infinite. You talk about the Brahma Viharas. Merging in oneness with boundless compassion. Merging in oneness with boundless consciousness. Some just profound meditative states. And the first person I see, not only did I kind of get a little irritated, I yelled at him in the restaurant and I said, what the hell's the matter with right to his face? And the kind teacher, because he was so kind, and he just said, first of all, he pointed out that, you know, Richard, you're a little more sensitive than I think you realize. <laughs> and all this, you know, this Abu Ghraib and everything, it's going right in. So give yourself a break, first of all. And the sensitivity was ahead of the equanimity. And he just, he didn't judge me. He just said, that's what happened. And then the second thing he said that I loved, and this is what I want to offer to you. He said, look, this is the teacher speaking, said, I've long ago given up the idea that there's a, we're going to end up in some perfection of whatever. He says, um, we're a mix of motivations and we're working on them the best I can, we can and a mix of forces. And we've got the wholesome and unwholesome. And by definition, until you're a Buddha yourself, you can have reactive places and you can have greed, hatred, and delusion in your mind. You're not doing anything wrong. You're just not a full Buddha. And you're going to fall flat on your face a thousand times. And you have to know ahead of time that that's going to happen and hold yourself with some kindness. And yes, clean up your mess. And yes, pick yourself up and move forward. So as you move out, in addition to having an experimental attitude, and in addition to you know, try the experiment of seeing everyone, you know, it's, it's all for your benefit and your teacher. Instead of judging yourself by how good or bad you're doing it, whatever it is in life, look for what, if you're going to, remember we talked about manas, did I say that here in this group, about conceit? And if we think we're equal to or less than, remember, I, I think it was in the first night, if we're going to judge ourselves, I'm coming back around to that. If you're going to judge yourself, look to your intention because that actually does speak to what's most deeply true, your aspirations, your intentions. That didn't change for me with him. The rest was, well, that's a reactive pattern. That's what we're working on. So those will happen. But it doesn't take away your more deep, innate beauty and goodness. That, so the more we can stay in touch with that, it can help hold ourselves in perspective as we go out with all the ups and downs that are going to come. Yeah. So I just wanted to end with that and ooh, uh, thank you for your patience. Um, I really went over time tonight. Um, so please accept my apologies for that and um, um, we'll just leave it at that for an end. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.